Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. It's on page 13 of your Blue Pew Bible. And as we're, as we're turning to consider uh, the Word of God, let's, let's read the summons to the Word. The summons calls us to a sobriety and to a, a sense of, of um, a gravity as to what we're about to do. This is the summons to the Word is taken from Isaiah chapter 40. Let's read it now together. All people are like grass, says Isaiah, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Genesis is a, uh, is a book about life. It's a book about life. It's a book about the God who gives life. The God who is the Lord of all life. Genesis begins with an account that really is astonishing. It's, it's, it's this account, especially in the ancient world, an account of a God of, of one single source of all life, of all that is beautiful, of all that is good. In heavens above, and the earth beneath, and the waters below, there is one who is the author of all life, who uses his power for one reason and one reason alone, to give life. Think about that. Often I talk to my kids about who God is, and I describe God as a strong sharer. That's what we see in, in the book of Genesis. It begins with God, this picture of God, who is the, he's the author and the giver of all life. But through, through, through our, our humanity, our, the first humanity's disobedience, through their refusal to surrender to that word of life, to give themselves to that word of life, thinking that somehow they knew better death, enters into the world. In God, in this, this, remarkable, this remarkable exchange between, between him and, and our, 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 the first humanity, between Adam and Eve, this remarkable exchange where God basically says, I will, I'm going to get in your way. I am not going to let you continue down this path of death undeterred. And he actually... He takes the very means by which he appointed, he appointed them to give life through, 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 for, for the man through laboring in, uh, in the fields and through the woman laboring in, in childbirth. He complicates those. He actually curses them. And he gets in their way. It's sort of like, it's sort of like uh, if, if as a parent, a loving parent saying, uh, with a rebellious teenager saying, Say, look, I'm going to make life difficult for you if you continue down this path. And so he, he as, as one author describes it, he spit in their soup, right? Think about that. It's got a very, very powerful metaphor that God, God, you think of the soup that we're making, this, this soup of rebellion, and God just comes along and spits in it, right? It's just his way of saying, I am not for you in this. And so sure enough, into the world comes all manner of labor, of work, of uh, not just simply work in the sense of good satisfaction, but in the sense of labor, of that which we do in a way that, that is, that is um, full of pain and hardship. And so, and so against, against this picture of, of, of a God of life, who is now challenging, standing in, 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 the, in the way of a people, of a humanity that is so bent on death, so bent on making life all about them, God, God comes to a specific person, to Abraham, and says, through you, Abraham, I am going to introduce life into this world of death. And Abraham becomes this agent of life, this agent of blessing in the world. 
And we see in this particular passage here, Abraham, one who now is well into his years, is 99 years old. He's an old man. His wife, Sarah, she's around 90 years old. And God has long promised them a child. And again, God here picks for to be his agents of life, his agents of blessing the world, those who are particularly incapable of it. He picks a barren couple, uh, Abraham and Sarah. And we'll talk more about some of the background. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 18. This, this, uh, this particular chapter, these, these 15 verses, are marked so powerfully by a sense of longing, a sense of loss. They're incredibly human uh, in, their, in, their, um, in their description here. Let's, let's, uh, let's read the word. Hear now the word of the living God from Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and, uh, and milk and the calf that had been prepared, and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were all now, excuse me, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, and as she thought, "After I am worn out and my, my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure?" Then the Lord said to Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yes, you did laugh. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> I don't know if you're familiar with the Christmas song, Christmas carol. It's called, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. You familiar with that song? 
It's the most wonderful time of the year. I don't know, is it really? Is it really the most wonderful time of the year? I can remember a young lady coming into my office. Oh, she actually texted me. This was four or five years ago. I was ministering to, to, uh, to persons, uh, mostly grad students in their 20s. Uh, and this was in Durham, North Carolina, and she came to me, it was May, and uh, she texted me just, just out of the blue, which is fine, and then she said, hey, can we meet immediately? Like right now. And I said, I, said, I, I think I can, I can do that. Is everything okay? She said, no, I need, I need to. So she literally, within like 15 minutes, she was at the, at the church, sitting in my office, and she was um, anxious, incredibly anxious, and I said, what, what, what's, what's going on, you know? And she said, I, she said, I, um, she, said I she was a student, uh, a pharmacy student. And uh, she said, I applied for a, a Christmas um, internship uh, for the, the coming, coming Christmas. And, and I got it, and I was so relieved. Only then I just found out just now in an email that the internship wasn't for this Christmas, but for the following Christmas. And she said, and now I've got nothing to do. I've got nothing planned for this Christmas. And I said, okay, well, well help me out here because, I mean, it's, it's May. You know, um, you know and, I, and I didn't say it kind of, but I was trying to, like, help, help me understand. And she said, you don't, she said, you don't get it. I have to have something planned for Christmas because I can't go home. And she proceeded to tell me about her, the various Christmases she had growing up, growing up as a child. Both of her parents had been medical doctors and had never been home at Christmas. And she described the, the, the divorce that happened between the two of them in junior high and just how every Christmas for her was a reliving of a nightmare. See, for so many, the Christmas time of year is a time that is anything but the most wonderful time of the year. When we, when we think about the past, often Christmas is that time, or holidays are that time, when we're almost forced to think about the past. We see this, in, uh, we see this sense of, of thinking about the past and wrestling with the past and longing for things to be different. And that's why so many, again, I mentioned this already, so many this time of year simply busy themselves. They busy themselves. They distract themselves. How many often at Thanksgiving they go skiing or they plan vacations more and more often. In fact, I remember speaking to one man who talked about how growing up in his home, he had a, he had a parent who struggled greatly with alcohol. And that, 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 that struggle intensified over the holiday season, making his life uh, as, a, as a kid just, uh, just completely miserable. And so often Christmas and the Advent season is, is a time of great pain, a time uh, where we're almost forced to encounter family and friends and, the, and, and, our, and, and our past in a way that we just don't want to deal with. And we long for things to be different. We just long things to be different. In fact, all, so often we, we long to go back. We long to go back and do things differently. We long for a different childhood, a different, a different, different decisions that we've made, making different decisions that we've made. And so often that sense of longing, it's in the various, think about how many songs we have that talk about this notion of longing, of wanting to go, of, of, of wishing that you could have a second chance, of wishing that you could go back in some way. In fact, I remember I, I, uh, 
one particular, uh, there's a um, particular rapper, Eminem, and he has this line that's particularly um, um, acute in one of his songs. He says, you don't get another chance. Life is no, no, no Nintendo game. Such an interesting line. Life is no Nintendo game. You don't get a second chance. You don't get another chance. And it raises this question, what do we do with the past? What do we do with the past that we have? I think it's so fascinating to me how this, this story, Genesis 18, and really all the story of Genesis, focuses on this elderly couple. A couple that really has no future. They got really nothing to offer. They have relative wealth, but they have no children. They have no legacy. And they have a very complicated, if you read, read the, through the, the actual Abraham story, there's a very complicated relationship between the two of them. And we see here in this story, let me just, let's just walk through these, these verses together. Again, this is Genesis 18. I'm going to just, just give you a little insight into how masterfully the story is told and the sense of longing that is here. Again, it's, it was about, think about this, it was about 20-some years before this, 20 to 25 years before this that Abraham, that God has promised Abraham a child. Think about that. I mean, why would God wait, make Abraham wait so incredibly long? Back in Genesis 15, God had said, God had actually called Abraham out at night and pointed to the stars he said, Abraham, do you see, you know, count, you know, do you see the stars? Count them if you can. And he says, so shall your offspring be. Imagine the, the nights that Abraham was just stuck outside looking at the stars, wondering, is this ever going to actually come true? This sense of longing, is it ever going to happen? Imagine how there are times he probably thought, and, here's, and his wife Sarah how she thought that, you know, why? God gives me this incredible promise, and then he sticks me with this woman who's barren. She's the problem. In fact, at some point, Sarah actually proposes in Genesis chapter 16, she proposes, she gives, she gives Abraham her maidservant, Hagar, and says, hey, let's try this. In the ancient world, it was a very sort of more accepted idea. Make, Sarah, make, make Hagar your concubine. And of course, that, that, whole, that whole strategy goes south. As in fact, Hagar is, does, does end up having a child, and, and the relationship between Hagar and Sarah gets incredibly complicated. One of great competition that ends just in bitter strife and actually ends in tragedy. And there's all this sense of regret, this sense of longing, a sense of longing for things to be different. A sense of this is not how I thought it would be. And there's this, throughout, the path, throughout this whole section, especially in the end of chapter 17 and 18, is this sense of cynicism. And that cynicism comes out in a, in a single way. It's a way that we're all very familiar with. It's so human. It's the cynicism that comes out in laughter. Laughter. How many of you ever laugh in a cynical way? You just look at the situation, you think, you know, you just sit there and you just kind of just chuckle. Because it's so bitter. It's so hard. In fact, in our story, we, we'll talk about Sarah's laughter in a second, but already um, in, in chapter 17, Abraham is actually the first one to laugh. 
Look back in, again on page 13 in chapter 17, verse 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, but her name shall be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And then we read in verse 17, Abraham fell face down. He laughed. And he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, listen to this, if only, if only. sense of longing, a sense of, look, I, I got an idea. This is, this is the way it should be done. See, all of us have these longings, the sense of, man, couldn't it have happened differently? And, and wouldn't this be the way that God should work? And why won't he work in this way? This may, I, this, I got an option. I got a way. This, this is how it's going to go. If only Ishmael, that's the son of Hagar, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And of course, God, God, God so graciously responds to that, but, but insists that, again, Sarah will be the one. And here in this passage, and what's so interesting about this passage is that is is just the way that the, 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 the story is told in such mystery. It's, there's so much we don't really understand. That's so true to our lives, isn't it? We're living life and like, what is going on? So look at chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of, Ma- of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Now, so the narrator tells us, we know what's going on. We know what's happening. But in verse 2, we get that we get suddenly the, the the perspective, the point of view changes, and we're we're sort of we're sort of re, we're sort of uh, what's the how I want to explain this? We're looking at the story, we're experiencing the story through a, through the eyes of Abraham. Abraham looks up and he sees three men standing nearby. Now it's kind of this first sort of mysterious appearance. Where, where did these guys come from? He's having to look up and he sees them there, and there's a sense of mystery of who are these three men. And again, to him, they're just, they're just men. And he sees them there at the end. And, and then he, once he sees them, he hurries from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bows low to the ground. Now, this is so incredible. Abraham is such an interesting character. And he's got many, many flaws. But in this passage, he just soars. Not knowing who these, these persons are, he does something that was really the greatest virtue in the ancient Near East. And that was hospitality. That was hospitality. See, here's Abraham waiting, struggling with cynicism. And you know what he decides to do? This is almost so simple, it's just, it's just crazy. He decides to serve. He decides to serve. And struggling with cynicism, he decides to serve these, these outsiders, these, these, these mysterious figures. And he serves them, and it's almost this kind of it's almost kind of comical. There's this old man, and he's hurrying around. He goes up to them, and he's so humble. He's so he's so respectful. Verse three, he said, "If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and you, then you, you may wash all your feet and rest under the tree. Let me let me get something to let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant, do you see the humility? Do you see the service." 
And they respond very well. Do as you say. So Abraham, we see this, this again, this more hurrying, scurrying around. He goes to Sarah, not to Hagar, goes to Sarah. He says, quick, get three seeds of the finest flour and knead it and bake it, bake some bread. And then he runs to the herd and selects the best from the flock and, and, and instructs one of his, uh, his servants to take care of it. And then goes and gets more, uh, get, and takes all of them and brings them to the, these, these, these mysterious men and serves them. And he waits there so beautifully. He's waiting like a, like a waiter would, um, standing by uh, near, under a tree. And this is where things get really interesting. Where is your wife, Sarah? And it's like, how, does, how did they know that Abraham had a wife? How did they know that her name was Sarah? Especially when her name had been, just been changed. What's going on here? See, there's mystery. There's uncertainty. And Abraham's trying to figure out what's going on. Again, it's so true to life. We don't understand. This is so important. God is present with Abraham, with Sarah, and they don't fully grasp it. They don't understand what's going on. They don't realize the moment, the significance of how God is present in their lives. And to them, it's just, just confusing. It's uncertain. There's mystery. There's uncertainty. There's so many gaps here in the story that we don't understand. And I think that's the point. Abraham simply says, there, in the tent. And then one of them says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So for the first time, the promise of a child has actually been given a date. A deadline. And this is where this is where things again. This is I just I just love Sarah in this passage. I just love her in this passage. See, Abraham responds with service. In the midst of his struggle to be cynical, in the midst of the struggle of doubt, the sense of when is God gonna do the impossible? He responds with service. But look how Sarah here, Sarah responds with sincerity. This is something I just so want to encourage. I mean, she, she, she doesn't know fully what's going on. She doesn't realize who these visitors are. But she knows, obviously, that they're making this prediction. She, obviously, she knows something's going on because they, they, suddenly they, they know the situation. They know that she's barren. They know her name. And we read that Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind, which was behind him. And then we have the narrator reminding us of the, of the, of the all-important details. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was just past, was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Now I think there's something so human about, what, about, about everything that Sarah's just done. First, notice what she does. She laughs. There's cynicism there. There's like, you, you got to be kidding me. I mean, so often we think about, you know, oh, in Bible times, they were so gullible. They just all kind of thought oh, all kinds of amazing things. Sarah understands the situation. She knows that there's no possibility. She knows that, she knows where that, that, that this simply doesn't happen, so she laughs. It's like, you have got to be kidding me. I've been around a long time, and these things don't happen. And, but you'll notice even more importantly, the Sarah doesn't just laugh. She laughs what? To herself. She keeps it in. 
So often we do that, don't we? Our darkest thoughts, our deepest thoughts, we keep them inside. The sense of cynicism, the sense of just, uh, of just defeat, we carry that around with us all alone. It's so human. You know, so often as a minister, I, I just had this very struggle. My job, in some sense, is to hope for all of you. To be the one who actually is this bearer of a word of hope. And yet sometimes I carry around with me such a sense of despair. I mean, even this past Thanksgiving, I'm mean, ashamed to say, I spent most of the morning just so discouraged. So at a loss, feeling so alone. And that is just that is something as a minister to, to be real about who I am, to be real about, wow, there are some times when I feel so far away from anything that remotely approaches hope. And I laugh to myself. And I think, really? I look at my life, I look at my relationships, I look at my ministry, and I think this is a complete disaster. I just want to laugh. You got to be kidding me. So Sarah laughs, but she laughs to herself. And there's this internal dialogue. Look how she describes herself. After I am worn out, the Hebrew there is like the idea of I'm all used up. I have got nothing left to offer. There is no life coming from this body. And understand here, this isn't just about pregnancy. It's not just about the idea of a child. It's not just about a legacy. The, the, the concept here is that Abraham and Sarah are to be bearers of life in a world that is marked by death. They're to be life-giving. They're to be actually part of the solution, not part of the problem. They're there, they're, 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 they're there to give, not to take. And so often, you, when you actually set down a path of wanting to love, wanting to give, wanting to serve, you realize what? You got nothing to offer. You got nothing to offer. I am so worn out. After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, my husband's old, nothing's coming for him. Will I now have this pleasure? Really? And what's, and, and, and the, 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 the English doesn't quite capture the, the actual quite very... Um, Let's see, the very explicit, if you will, nature of what she says here. Will I now have this pleasure? She's actually speaking of the pleasure of marital intimacy. She's really, it's been a long time since that's ever happened. It's been a long time since anything has happened between me and Abraham. Really? You know, and the Lord here is so, so interesting. Verse 13, the Lord responds. He says, to, he speaks to Abraham. It's not like he could, he could have gone, hey, Sarah, I can hear you, right? He speaks to Abraham. He says, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? I think that's such a penetrating question. It's such a, such a again, it's such an enigmatic question. Why did Sarah laugh? It's this question of, of wait, wait, haven't you told her? <laughs> Didn't I tell I already told you in the last chapter, just a little while ago, that in, in a year's time, I, I was gonna. I was gonna have. Did you? Did you say anything? You wonder. Did Abraham even bother to tell her? Why? And if he didn't tell her, why? There'd be so many reasons, right? Does he really want to break? Can he really stand? What if it doesn't actually happen? He doesn't want to give her hopes up. 
These ones are just, you know, just mess things up. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie um, the Shawshank Redemption. There's a, there's a wonderful line in there in which um, the, the uh, character played by Morgan Freeman says, hope is a dangerous thing. It can kill a man. Isn't that amazing? Hope is a dangerous thing. Maybe Abraham just couldn't bear the idea of, of sharing this promise with his wife, Sarah. He says, what, what, why did Sarah laugh? Like, why is she just learning this? Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? And in this really beautiful way, God continues with his questioning. Confrontationally, sure, but also comfortingly, graciously. He asked the million-dollar question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Literally, the Hebrew says, is anything too wonderful, too extraordinary? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then... Graciously, he restates his promise. So look, I, I understand you're not with me, Sarah. <laughs> it's okay. You can laugh. You don't have to believe me right now. I understand you're in a place of doubt. You're in a place of cynicism. I get it. But I want you to know the promise doesn't depend on your faith. It doesn't depend on how you feel right now doesn't depend on our feelings. There's this independent reality that God is the God who raises the dead, the God who gives life, the God for whom nothing is impossible, and he will make it happen. There's something so beautiful in moments where I am struggling and I'm thinking, you know what? I really don't feel like a Christian at all. I really don't. I am so cynical. I'm so angry right now. I'm so frustrated. In those moments, I can actually step back from all of the just the, 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 the complete thunderstorm, the complete hurricane of all my feelings. And I can say, you know what? Not, not to disregard my feelings, not to make light of them, not to judge even the feelings, but to actually step back and say, you know what? My feelings don't make for reality. There is a God outside of my feelings who has made promises. A God who looks at me and says, Bruce, I can always bring life out of death in every situation. And that's why as much as I struggle in my job, I love my job. You know why? Because again and again and again as a minister, I get to have a front row seat to seeing God bring life out of death. I get a front row seat to God mending marriages. I get a front row seat to seeing, seeing a reconciliation between parent and child. I get a front row seat to seeing people actually, a young lady struggling with an eating disorder. Just, just, I, I, just so uh, distraught, so alone, seeing her walk back from the, from the cliff enter into greater health, a completely transformed way of thinking about how she sees herself. Don't get me wrong, I'm, are there situations where I just, I do, I, man, it just, things just don't seem to get better. I don't know why we work, I, 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 you work at it, you, you pray, and you, boy, do I pray. So I'm not trying to make it all rose-colored, but so often I used to get to see God bring life out of death. This morning, I'm going to draw, I'll just draw your attention to one more thing in the passage here. 
the way that uh, the Sarah, that Sarah lies. Verse 18, verse 15 here. It says, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yes, yes, you did laugh. In Hebrew, the word la- laugh is yatsak, yatsak. And he laughs is yitzak. And if you know the rest of the story, in fact, God does return a year later, and Sarah does have a son. And when she has a son, do you know what she does? She laughs. Yitzhak. And she names the child Isaac. Yitzhak. Laughter. Listen, in the midst of all our pain, in the midst of all our cynicism, the hope of Advent is that God will have the last laugh. He will. The God who raises the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Christian, this morning, if you are struggling, if you feel at such a loss, know that the saints felt that way so often. You are not off the map of Christian experience. I realize that some of you have grown up or been exposed to forms of Christianity where it was look down upon to grieve, to mourn, to laugh in cynicism. But there's a reality, there's a, there's a sincerity to Sarah that is truly beautiful, that is, in a sense, an example for us. That she too is a saint. And recall, let me close with this, recall that Abraham, his name was Abram. Sarai, her name was Sarai, but God changes their name Their name is what matters. God looks at someone and he says, you know, you are a sinner, but guess what? I have justified you. You are defiled, but I have purified you. He looks at us and he calls us not orphans, not slaves. He calls us sons and daughters. And that is a name, and that is a a title that can never be reversed. So again, no matter how you may feel, no matter how much struggle there may be, God is not ashamed to look upon Abraham, this worn-out old man who can bring no life out of himself and call him Abraham, father of many nations. Isn't that amazing, astonishing? God is a God, says the Apostle Paul, who raises the dead, who gives life to the dead, and calls things that are not as though they were. So this morning, if you look at yourself and say, I am so not when I need to be. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has and will make you one day what he has promised you to be. You know, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, as we turn to the Lord's table, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus was, uh, what an awkward meal that first Lord's Supper was. The disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest. <laughs> no, no, I really think I'm greater than you are. Right? Imagine what that would have been like, right? And in fact, it's the second time they had been arguing about who was the greatest. And then Jesus was at earlier, Jesus had said, Look, all of you are going to fall away on account of me. And Peter says, No, we're good. We're good. They were so far. I mean, you think, and, and, and Jesus says to them, He says, I have longed, literally, the Greek says, I have longed with longing. I have greatly longed to have this supper with you. And you're thinking, Are you kidding me? It's the last place I'd want to be with these lousy people. They're so far away from getting it. 
You know why Jesus wanted to be with them? You know why he was so eager to eat this meal? Do you know why right here today Jesus Christ is eager to give you his body and blood? Because he sees what each and every one of you will one day become. Each and every, each and every one of you, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, will one day stand in a perfectly, I mean, an indescribably perfect human body with resurrection life flowing through your veins, absolutely unable to sin ever, ever again. You will stand in a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more crying or tears or pain or sorrow or grief for the old order of things will have passed away. That's why Jesus stands here this morning. He stands among us, as we will, as we will momentarily share, as we will proclaim. He stands among us, and he sees what you will one day become. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, nothing indeed is impossible for you. Father, so many here have sorrows and pains and regrets. They long for a second chance. Father, I pray so much that you would fill them with hope. A hope not in themselves, a hope not in politicians or princes, a hope not in education, a hope not in success, but a hope in in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came all the way down for us, who knew every pain, every sorrow, who was deprived of spouse, who was deprived of children, who is deprived of any sort of success, old age, retirement, who is deprived of security, who is deprived of any sort of provision, the one who lost everything for our sake. He came and died for us. He was raised to life for us that we might indeed be united to him and share, share in purity, in peace, in hope, that we might actually, out of, our, out of our dead bodies, of our worn-out bodies, our worn-out souls, bring life. Father, even this week, I pray that you would surprise each and every one of us with life and blessing. Father, please draw near to those who are hurting, to those who are so angry, who are so overcome with cynicism, they just laugh, they just chuckle, draw near to them. And may we be a family that does that very thing, drawing near to one another, encouraging each other, hoping for the hopeless, having faith for the unbelieving. Father, fill us, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, as we turn now to your table, we recognize how indeed you are a God who has in every way shown mercy upon us through your Son. Father, we think of how he lived and died as one of us in order to reconcile us to you, Father, we think of how he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, costly obedience to your will, offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. Father, it is his death that we now proclaim, and it is in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.